You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a four-part series of messages Tony Evans presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week 1993, and on Friday, a message he delivered at Founders Week 2013. Tony Evans is a Bible teacher on The Alternative radio program, an author and pastor of Oak Cliff Christian Fellowship in Dallas, Texas. Now, here is Tony Evans on Today in the Word radio. Thank you. And again, it's my delight to be here at Moody Bible Institute, a school that I have the utmost respect, admiration for, to be with uh, many friends who I've met over the years, and to be with a man who has become one of my closest friends, Dr. Stoll, and uh, to see our camaraderie and oneness uh, blossom in our commonality in the cause of Christ brings my heart great joy, and to to know the enthusiasm that exists here for the Word of God and for ministry is indeed a blessing. So while it is my privilege to come minister to you, I am very grateful for the opportunity to be in an environment that ministers back to me. Remember that spiritual maturity is guaranteed, but it is not automatic. That is our thesis this week. Shall we pray? Father, as we continue this thought that you have made all the mechanisms available for us to be mature believers, may we understand the implications of that and apply it to our lives, that we might experience your power and victory in our day-to-day living. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's suppose that you went to Sears and you were in need of a refrigerator. And upon going to Sears, you shopped around and came to the top of the line, the most expensive refrigerators in the store. And there was this one particular model that was just astronomical. It was a 21st century refrigerator. I mean, this thing not only had the normal bells and whistles, the ice maker, the water dispenser. I mean, on this one, when you open the doors, the trays slid out automatically. We're talking about, we're talking about a bad fridge. Uh, and so for $10,000, they would gladly sell you that refrigerator, and you decided that you would splurge, and you purchased that refrigerator. They were going to deliver it that afternoon, so on your way home, you go to the, the local uh, store, and you collect the food that you're going to put into the refrigerator when it arrives. That afternoon, the refrigerator arrives. You stock it. All is well. You retire for the night, only to come out the next morning and look at catastrophe. The ice cream has run all down out of the refrigerator onto the floor. The milk has spoiled. The vegetables have begun changing color. And it has become cataclysmically apparent to you that this thing does not work that you have spent $10,000 on a lemon. Well, you pick up your telephone, call Sears, ask for the appliance department, and you call for the proprietor who sold it to you so you could give him a piece of your evangelical mind. <laughs> the proprietor comes to the phone and you, you, I mean, you latch into him and tell him, how could he sell you this piece of junk? He's very stupefied and shocked because... 
he was sure that the refrigerator worked and he wants to double check some things. And so he asked you, first of all, to pull the freezer side open to check and see whether that side light comes on. It does not. He asked you to put your ear near the bottom where the motor is and see if you hear a hum of any sound to signify anything working. You do not. He then comes up with a fairly ingenious idea. He asks you to check this cord in the back of the refrigerator uh, to see whether it has ever been plugged in. You go, but look behind the refrigerator, and wouldn't you guess it, lo and behold, the thing has not been plugged in. Still furious, you come to the phone and tell the proprietor it has not been plugged in, but for $10,000, that shouldn't matter. You insist that this thing ought to work on general principle because anything that costs that much should be automatic. The proprietor then must explain to you a very simple principle. And that is that appliances are dependent entities. They are never and have never been, nor will they ever be constructed to work on their own. And while they have been given all the parts, the parts cannot be what the parts were created to be unless empowered to be that. That while all the ingredients are there so that the freonic exercise of coolness may be disseminated through the appliance of your refrigerator, while all of the elements are there to provide you the coolant necessary to preserve your foodstuffs over an extended period of time, they can never be what they were created, designed, and manufactured to be unless electrical current empowers it to be so. What is true of that refrigerator is true of your spiritual life. When you came to Jesus Christ, he gave you all the manufactured parts that are necessary to produce in you a victorious Christian life. He gave you a new nature. He gave you a new mind. He gave you a new consciousness. He's given you a new heart. He's given you a new uh, orientation to life. He has given you all the things necessary for you to be what he has created you to be, but none of them can work unless empowered to do so. That is, you can never be what you were created to be unless you are plugged into the electrical carrot necessary to enable you to become the person of God that he has redeemed you and me to be. And that is precisely why he has given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's electrical carrot. He is the one whom God has provided to guarantee, to ensure that the process of spiritual victory is achieved. Some time ago, I was driving down the highway and my car stalled. I tried to turn it and it would not turn. And, and uh, so we pushed it over to the side and I waved for some help. Another gentleman pulled off the road back up and made his car face my car. As his car faced my car, he went into his trunk and pulled out some jumper cables. He connected his positive with my positive, his negative with my negative, and then turned on his motor. A very amazing thing happened. And that is there was a current transfer. The power of his battery became the power of my battery so that when I turned on my ignition, my dead battery now became alive, not because it had life within itself, but because there was a current transfer occurring. 
so that the life of his battery was being connected and transferred via the cables to the deadness of my battery so that in fact my battery became as alive as his battery was. My battery could do and allow my car to do what his battery was doing and allowing his battery to do not because I had the power but because I had the connection. 1900 years ago, Jesus Christ, the uh, Son of God, died on the cross and rose from the dead. He became our living battery. But what he did was connect with our deadness via the jumper cable of the Holy Spirit in order to transfer the current from his life to our life so that we could become as alive as he is, so that we could be as victorious as he was because his life is transferred to our lives so that we are able to drive the cause of our spiritual life down the road of the will of God, arriving at the destination of the glory of God via the power transfer that occurred from his living life through the cable of the Holy Spirit so that his life becomes our life, his victory becomes our victory, so that we become what the manufacturer's specifications declare that we should be. That is what the Holy Spirit does. There are three truths about the Holy Spirit and his enablement that I would like to share. First of all, John 14 lets us know that the Holy Spirit is specifically and uniquely given to empower us to be what God has saved us to become. Jesus is about to leave the disciples in John 14. He is about to go to heaven. He lets them know that their heart should not be troubled, that he's leaving. That if they believed in God, they should believe also in him, and he is going to prepare a place for them. Now, there's a lot of misconception here. We don't have time to get into a theological treatise on the doctrine of heaven, but there's a great deal about heaven taught in this passage. One of the things that's not taught in this passage is that you have a mansion. Now, I know you'd like a mansion. I'd like a mansion too, but uh, there, there aren't mansions in heaven. In fact, there's only one building in heaven. It's called my father's house, singular. The Greek word for dwelling place was the Greek word used in the first century for apartments. So the best you're going to get out of this deal is an apartment, okay? Now, uh, uh, you see, when I go home to visit my father, all of, our, all of his children stay in uh, my father's house because my father wants all of his kids around. And what he does is allocate a room for each of us because he wants his whole family uh, in sync with him. What God is going to prepare is not his father's house. His father's house already exists. What he's going to prepare is your room. And he prepares your room based on your faithfulness. He prepares your room based on your, on, on your consistency. And at the time it's time for you to come home, I know this is a passage often used to defend the rapture, but I'd like to suggest its primary concern is not the rapture, but the calling home of the saints. Because if it were the rapture, then it would be unapplicable to the people to whom he was speaking, the disciples. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come for you. Meaning that he would come, and I believe that's what happens when a person dies. You don't go to God. God comes for you, illustrated in Acts chapter 7. When Stephen died, before he died, he saw heaven open. Jesus gave him a standing ovation, and uh, he was escorted into heaven. That's what I believe what happens when God comes for us. He comes prior to us dying so that we are then ready to make the transfer from earth to eternity in our prepared quarters that have been finished at the time of our appointed death. In the midst of this insecurity, in the midst of this insecurity, how are they going to make it when Jesus, who has been their lifeblood for the last three years, when he has been their life sustainer for the last three years, is going to take off on them? 
He lets them know in verse 16 by saying, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. And he, that he may be with you forever, and that is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive <clears throat> because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. He says to them, I am going to leave you another helper. There are two very important Greek words side by side there. One is the word another because there are two Greek words that can mean another. One is another of a different kind, and the other one means another of the same kind. In other words, I'm going to leave you another of the same kind. In other words, even though I'm leaving, you're not going to be left with less than you had when I was here. Sometimes we think if we lived in the first century, we'd be much stronger Christians because we'd be with Jesus. Not so. He says, because I'm going to leave you another of the same kind. A person with the same everything that I offered you will be here. In fact, he'll be able to do something I can't pull off. And that is help you ongoingly. To put it another way, we would be worse off if Jesus was on the earth today. If Jesus was on the earth today, virtually everybody in this room would be a defeated Christian. If Jesus was on this earth today, we would be of all men most miserable. It would be a theological mistake for Jesus Christ to be on the earth today and we would collapse in misery if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was here on earth today. Why? Because when Jesus Christ was on earth, he limited the exercise of his deity to the location of his humanity. Even though he was all God all the time, because of the incarnation or the infleshness of Jesus Christ, he limited the exposure of his deity to the location of his humanity. And since his humanity could only be one place at one time, the expression of his deity would only be in that place at that time. So in order for him to empower the church, since they were going to be going to Judea, Samaria, Galilee, they were going to be going to the uttermost parts of the earth, they were going to be going in different directions, there needed to be the exercise of the, of the deity of Christ that could be in more than one place at a time. And so what he says is, I'm going to give you help, but it's a, another of the same kind of help, because you need someone who will be with you when you break up. To put it another way, if I need Jesus, I don't want to hear he's tied up with you. And when you need Jesus, you don't want to hear he's tied up with me. We need a Christ who can be with us in every part of the globe all the time. The incarnate Christ can't do that. He cannot do that because he's voluntarily chosen not to do it by limiting the expression of his deity to the location of his humanity. So in order for all of us to have equal opportunity to be under the enabling power of God, he sent another comforter. Now this word helper is a very interesting word because it means God giving you guts. To be a comforter means that he enables you, assists you, he helps you in order to give you the power necessary so that you can pull off whatever he commands you to do. 
And that's why in verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 15 preceding verse 16 signifies that, that obedience is very crucial to the realization of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it is the obedient Christian who realizes that God has given him this unique supernatural enablement or help. Now, the reason why God has given us the Holy Spirit is that on our own, we do not have the power to pull off the spiritual life. Unfortunately, far too many Christians have not realized this and spend far too much time attempting to rectify or energize the flesh. It comes under a number of psychological terminology. It comes in the name of the power of positive thinking. But all of those categories are often simply trying to get the flesh to do right. If the flesh could do right, we wouldn't need another comforter. We wouldn't need another helper. The whole point of the Christian life is that it's a supernatural life. You can't do it. You need some electrical current to empower you to pull off what you could never do on your own. And so what we want to do, many of many people try to be spiritual lion tamers. They try to whip the flesh. They try to snap the flesh into doing right. If you could do that, you wouldn't need the electrical carrot. Many years ago, the way they tried to see whether insane people were ready to be released from the sanitarium, uh, they didn't have all the sophisticated gadgets that they have today. What they would do is put them in a room with a mop, turn the water on in the sink in the janitor's closet or whatever room it was, and let the water flow over. Give the inmate the mop and tell him to clean up the floor. With the water still running and the stopper still in the sink. They would leave and come back in 30 minutes. If this guy after 30 minutes was still mopping and the water was still running with the stopper still in the sink, they would not let him out. (laughs) And that was because he still didn't understand reality yet. That's what a lot of Christians are trying to do. We're trying to mop up junk out of our life with the water still running and the sink still stopped up. We're trying to use our human effort to clean up and the more we try to clean it up, the more the overflow keeps spilling because we don't understand that what we've got to deal with this is at the root level by understanding, first of all, that I've got to deal with the cause of this thing and only the Spirit of God can provide me that ability. And so he says that the Spirit of God, and, and, that's, and that's the proof that of, of the Spirit. I mean, I know we, we got people that want to speak in all kind of different languages, and, and they want to say that, you know, we're filled with the Spirit because I can talk in this, you know, gibberish, gugak, whatever it is, and we can do all of this stuff. That's a, no, the proof that the Spirit is doing this thing in you is he's giving you the ability to do what you could never do on your own. When you start doing that, then you know God is at work. When you start having the authority, when you start being like Peter, you're a coward one minute, but then you're able the next minute to stand up on Pentecost and say, we are not drunk as you suppose, being only uh, uh, 12 o'clock noon. Uh, What you're seeing is what Joel, the when he gives you the guts to stand for what the Bible demands, that's when you know that the Spirit of God is in control. That he gives you authority enablement. He gives you help. And that's one of the things that God is after, giving you the power to pull off the word of God. You know, this is a, it's a authority thing. 
you know, in football, they got a lot of big guys with, uh, you know, weightlifters. They, they lift weights. They exercise. Then on top of their own strength, they have all, all this equipment. And they can cause you great pain. They have a lot of power. But they're not the most powerful guys on the field. The most powerful guys on the field are little teeny guys with striped shirts and a whistle. See, because the football player can knock you down. The ref can put you out. The refs are the ones with all the power, okay? Satan is big and bad and strong, but you have the whistle because you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And so the Holy Spirit is, first of all, the enabler. Second passage we want to look at is Ephesians 5, that very famous passage about the filling or the control of the Holy Spirit. He says... In verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. In John 14, he has described the granting of the Spirit. That he is going to supply another comforter, and everyone here has that other comforter living within him or her. But that that presence does not equal empowerment. You have the power... But just like a refrigerator, it's got to be turned on. You can plug in anything you want to plug in, but unless it's turned on, then you don't get the benefit of the presence of the power. Every Christian in here has all of God residing in them in the person of the Holy Spirit. But all of God residing in you does not equal benefiting from that unless you turn it on. There must always be the exercise of the will because remember, spiritual maturity is guaranteed but it is not automatic. It's got to be flipped on. This is what this verse is talking about. He says, be not drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit. Now, as you know, when I preach, I try to preach to a large degree by analogy because of a very simple philosophy, and that is, for every spiritual principle, there is always a physical illustration. There is no such thing of any spiritual principle for which there is not a physical manifestation. So therefore, whenever I'm describing something spiritual, I look for the physical reality, and I get this out of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament. There is no spiritual principle ever given anywhere in the Bible where there is not accompanying it a physical reality. And the reason why God does that is because he knows our difficulty in perceiving the spiritual, and that's why he always ties it to the physical. So if you want to understand the second birth, he spends time explaining the first birth. When you want to understand uh, 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 how to grow, he says, like a newborn babe desiring the sincere milk of the word. In other words, there's always something that you can deal with visibly and physically to help you understand what you cannot perceive spiritually and invisibly. The same thing is true of the control of the spirit. If you do not understand the filling of the spirit, that's really okay if you understand being drunk with wine. Now, everybody in this room understands being drunk with wine because either in your unregenerate days you got drunk or because you've seen people who've been drunk and simply by understanding getting drunk you totally understand the doctrine of the filling of the spirit what happens when a man gets drunk when a person gets drunk they come under we call the influence 
In other words, they are now transformed by something else that controls their mind. When a person gets drunk, he can't walk like he would normally walk. He now staggers from side to side because something else is controlling his motor abilities. When a person gets drunk, even though they're normally passive and quiet, they now might be loud and boisterous because something else is controlling their personality. When a person gets drunk, even though they can't sing, now they think they're Pavarotti and can sing because something else is controlling their perception and perspective. In other words, when a person gets drunk, they act outside of themselves. They act abnormal to what they would normally act and what they would normally look like because something else has taken over. He says, be not Drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, get drunk. What God wants are a group of people who have become spiritually intoxicated, who have gotten literally drunk, who have come under the influence, but not of wine, but who have come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So that they act abnormal to what they would normally act when they were under control of the flesh. That is why when a person is controlled by the spirit, they know it and the person or the people to whom they're relating know it because it is abnormal behavior. It is not behavior that would be normal to them because they have become drunk. And that is why The Bible is declaring by way of command that we get drunk. There's only one way a person gets drunk, and that's by drinking. The only way to get drunk is by drinking, and the more you drink, the drunker you become. What God is demanding is that as a way of life, we drink the Holy Spirit, and we'll share in a moment how you take those sips. You drink the Holy Spirit in order to act outside of yourself. He explains a number of things that happens when we get drunk. He says in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. He gives now the results of getting drunk. One of the ways you know you have become an intoxicated Christian is that you're worshiping and it's not even Sunday. One of the ways you know that you have gotten intoxicated is when you're not planning to be at church, you are very much worshiping God because you have become spiritually intoxicated. When you are drunk, something else is controlling you, so aspects of worship become part of who you are. When you're drunk, he says in verse 20, you're always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To God, even the Father. When you're drunk, rather than being known for complaining, you're known for thanksgiving. Rather than always talking about what you don't have, you're spending time on what God has done. You become a grateful person rather than a complaining person. He says when you are drunk, appealing to another participle, he says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And he goes into husband and wife relationships. When you're drunk, you don't have to win all the time. Other people can now be winners and you can be happy for them because you're now able to willingly subject yourself to other people to accomplish the will of God. 
He says these things which are abnormal for the world become normal for the Christian only when they get drunk. How do you get drunk? He tells us in Galatians 5. He says in Galatians 5 verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. This has been a very misconstrued verse. And this is delicate territory I'm walking on right now, but I'd be bored if I didn't do it. (laughs) Please don't misread that verse. Walk in the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. It does not read, walk in the spirit and you will not have the desires of the flesh. Many times Christians are made to feel guilty because their flesh wants to do evil things. That's what the flesh does. The flesh wouldn't be the flesh if it didn't want to do that. Something is wrong with you if you have flesh that is not appealed to by that which is sin and unrighteous and evil. You don't have to feel bad or guilty or spiritually uh, a loser because your flesh wants to sin. In fact, depending upon how loose you lived prior to conversion will determine how bad your flesh wants to do certain things. For example, drugs. If a person was living a drug-oriented life prior to conversion, the flesh did not necessarily lose the desire for the taste of drugs just because they were converted. It is a misconstrued posture of the Christian life to think that just because I'm converted, I now should not have these evil desires. That is the nature of the flesh. Now this leads into a whole theology of uh, the spiritual life and of uh, conversion and of regeneration, but I would like to submit to you that the greatest New Testament preacher is the man who struggled with sin more than anybody else, and that was the Apostle Paul. When Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, and he said, the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do, and he goes back and describes this war. He is not writing as a non-Christian, that, that, that is a foreign thinking to the text. He is not writing as a carnal Christian, because God would not have a carnal Christian writing a New Testament book. He's writing as the most spiritual Christian of the church, and yet the most spiritual Christian of the church was recognizing that he had another law working inside of his flesh that were exacerbating his passions, that were causing him, could it be, that the thorn in the flesh in 1 Corinthians 12 was not an eye problem, not somebody who was messing over his life, but a sin desire that Paul couldn't get rid of. That there was something that was a passion in his life. He couldn't shake it. He wanted to get rid of it. He wanted to throw it off. He wanted to throw it away. But this thing kept coming up, sticking with him. In fact, even sometimes he fell because the things he didn't want to do, those are the things he did that sometime whatever this thing was, he 
He couldn't shake it off of him. But the spirituality of the man was that his sensitivity to sin had been so heightened by his intimacy with God that because he was close to God, he did not. He was finding that his victory was he had ability not to carry out the things of the flesh, not simply not to have the desire of the things of the flesh. And that's why many Christians don't see hope for their Christian lives because they can't shake the desire. When in fact, they may be realizing the greatest victory of their Christian life when even though they can't shake the desire, they are shaking yielding to the desire. And that's why the song Yield Not to Temptation for Yielding is Sin. And so... That does not, I do not mean by that we shouldn't try to deal with our wrong desires. All I'm saying is that the flesh is a magnet and as a magnet it wants to link in and attach itself and be attracted to those things that are anti-God. What God gives us is victory over the flesh, not necessarily over its desire, but over our having to yield to it. Now what does it mean to walk? In the spirit. Well, if you do not understand how to do it spiritually, just think physically. You may not understand its spiritual component, but you understand its physical component, walking. What is walking? Walking is simply one act of dependency after another. When you walk, you put one leg in front of another, putting all of your weight on that leg for that one step. Then you put the other leg out in front and you put all of your weight on that next leg for that one step. Walking is one step right after the other, leaning all your body weight on that leg for that one movement, okay? You don't hop, skip, and jump in the spirit. You don't run in the spirit. You walk in the spirit. In other words, it is a step-by-step moment by moment, conscious dependency on God's power in and through you rather than your power to pull off the Christian life. Now, since I already said some controversial things, let me continue down this track. One of the the great dangers here is the misuse of daily devotions. Many of us hop, skip, and jump in the spirit or leapfrog in the spirit. Because what we are banking on is that that time in the morning with God will kind of catapult us throughout the day to living the Christian life. Don't misunderstand me. I believe that there ought to be daily concentrated periods of time with God that we call devotions. But not as a means of living the Christian life. Because that puts too much weight on that 15 or 30 or 45 minutes to cover the rest of the 23 hours and 15 minutes that I've got to live. So Satan may not bother me during those 45 minutes I'm with God. My problem is that afternoon at 3 o'clock when I forgot what me and God went over that morning. To walk in the Spirit means some of us would be better off, listen to me, don't misunderstand me, Some of us would be better off shortening our devotion time and increasing our walk time than increasing our devotion time and missing our walk time. To walk in the spirit means to bring God to bear on everything I run into all day long. That's how you pray without ceasing. You don't get on your knees without ceasing. The reason you can pray without ceasing is because your mind is always 
running into something. Your life is always running into something. To walk in the Spirit means every step you take, you bring God to bear on whatever you are facing, which means you're praying all the time because you're always facing something so that there is never a moment where you're not interacting with God or remaining plugged in. Suppose you plug your refrigerator in in the morning and then you... Uh, unplugged it for the rest of the day but every morning you replugged it in that won't work you need an ongoing connection to the electrical current so that there is ongoing empowerment for whatever you face all day long and that means you bring God to bear all the time about everything so that you can live ongoingly under his power and under his authority he says he says, the flesh wars against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. And then he says something very interesting. Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Very powerful statement. When the spirit is under, is controlling you, the presence of rules becomes insignificant. Now, nothing wrong with rules, but their presence becomes insignificant. Why? Well, I do a lot of marriage counseling, and uh, a lot of times uh, husbands and wives, they, they're really at odds with one another. And when you talk about when they first got married, it's very interesting. When they first got married, the woman cooked for the guy, she cleaned for him, she washed his clothes, she ironed his clothes, she wanted him to look bad, he was her bad mamma jamma, I mean, he wanted, to, he wanted her to look, look good, and uh, uh, she, she did it. She didn't do it because he said you have to cook, you have to clean. She did it because of an overflow of relationship. Many years later, she still may be doing it, but now it's law. I gotta cook because I'm the wife. I gotta wash because I'm the wife. I've gotta iron because I'm the wife. She's still doing the same thing she was doing, but enjoying it less because she is dependent now on the law, not on the love. When you walk in the spirit, you will obey God. Now, you may obey, obey God anyway, but it becomes a job. The way to keep obedience from becoming a job and keep obedience as a joy is to learn to walk in the spirit because then obedience is the overflow of the relationship and not just fulfilling a bunch of rules that have been weighed down on you. It, it's born out of relationship. Now, what have I said? That God has given us the Holy Spirit. And his job is to guarantee we're empowered. He helps us. He fills us. He leads us. When I broke my leg playing football, I was on crutches for six months. They were my helpers. I'd put them under my arm. I'd lean them in front of me, and I'd rest all my weight. Because I had a 60-pound cast on, and so, so I, couldn't, I couldn't move without those crutches. And so I put all my weight on them, and those crutches enabled me. They enabled me. They were what I leaned on to make it, because I couldn't make it without them. In your life, you can't make it. You cannot live in this world without the power of God to lean on. But every now and then, I would forget my crutch. It would be somewhere and I didn't see it, but that's where I had another crutch, my wife. I put my arm around her shoulder. She'd put her arm around my waist. 
and I'd lean on her. Now that crutch was a lot different than those wooden crutches. Those wooden crutches could hold me up, but they couldn't love me, understand me, feel with me. But when I had that living crutch, I not only had someone to hold me up, I had somebody to hold me up who cared. As you go back to your class, as you go back to your life, take a little spiritual Alka-Seltzer with you. Holy Spirit, plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief he is. God bless you. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of four messages Tony Evans presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week in 1993. Tony Evans is a Bible teacher on The Alternative radio program, an author and pastor of Oak Cliff Christian Fellowship in Dallas, Texas. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.